and welcome to the Green Canary. Can you believe it's been a year already since COP26 in Glasgow? Well, it's now time later this week for COP27 in Egypt. Yes, it is. COP that. But will it be a cop out? Well, we're going to talk about that today in the pod. We're also going to be talking about a new report uh, on the emissions gap which is exactly the sort of reason why we need some good results at COP this week. We've got an interview with the author of a fantastic new book on ways to deal with climate change. We've got a great little story about a company that has been fined for greenwashing. That should happen more. And there's a little snippet about a bird that just flew further than any bird has ever been recorded flying, which I absolutely love that story. But let us fly, Elfie Scott and I. I am, of course, Ant Sharwood. And let's just rip straight into the first story about COP27. Oh, I'd better ask you how you are, Elfie. How's things? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this, actually, because you're right. We did launch last year basically off the back of COP26. So now it is exciting to be here for COP27. It's literally right around the corner. It is running from Sunday, November 6th to Friday, the 18th of November in Egypt. As a reminder for those of you who may need it, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And Ant is smiling at me right now because I made the world's funniest typo in the earlier script of this. (laughs) Elfie and listeners, this just just sent me giggling for hours. I've I've only just recovered. She wrote that it was the Conference of the Pirates. (laughs) Yes, me hearties. We're going to get together to discuss climate change mitigation (laughs) and ponder some doubloons whatever they are yeah so <laughs> look actually cop this year is being held in sham el sheikh which uh for those of you who are good at egyptian geography it's at the bottom of the sinai peninsula it is on the red sea the red sea is one of the most uh pirate po- prone waterways uh in the world right now yeah. so it, it, it might have almost been a, a good typo, not a bad typo, but it was a funny typo. That's for sure. <laughs> there you go. And always coming through with the little trivia bits. Um, anyway, so this is the 27th event of the COPS. It is a two week long series of conferences, talks and discussions between global leaders to tackle issues related to climate change. So uh, for those of you who may remember, last year's COP26 marked five years since the signing of the Paris Agreement. It culminated in the Glasgow Climate Pact, uh, which kept the goal of curbing global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius alive, but with, quote, a weak pulse, as the then UK presidency declared. Uh, So, yeah, uh, this is going to be a very interesting year. I think that it has been a couple of very disappointing years of COPs, and now we really have to see some governments knuckling down. And do you want to take us through what we expect to see from the Australian government and the sort of things that we should be keeping an eye on. Well, let's talk about who we're going to see. We're going to see Chris Bowen. Chris Bowen is going. And look, I think there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, feeling that maybe Albanese should have gone. I personally think he would have um, copped a bit of flack. Um, Can't stop saying cop, Elfie, help me. Um, But but I I feel like there may have been criticism because he has been out of the country a fair bit. So Chris Bowen has been sitting in the the shadow climate role. He has readied himself for this moment. I hope that Chris Bowen gets on the global stage and makes a good show. At least he can take the 43%, which we know is not the world's most ambitious target, 
But one of the things, of course, that's going to be on the agenda at COP is further climate mitigation. Now, now the documentation around this year's uh, conference says that we need 45% cuts in global emissions by the end of the decade to stay below that Paris target of 1.5 degrees. We're getting perilously close to that. We're up to about 1.3 so far, I believe, global warming, um, you know, in the fossil fuel age. So um, absolutely um, further emissions cuts, further uh, commitments to that are gonna be on the agenda. Also on the agenda, and this is crucial because COP is in, you know, Egypt, which is a developing nation, uh, is, su is support for developing nations to transition to clean energy. It is not cheap to do that. It is not easy to say, right, we're chucking out this uh, dirty old technology, ushering in a bunch of new clean technology. That costs money in the transition. Uh, on the table is gonna be how we can help developing nations make that transition. So they are two really important things that are gonna be happening at COP this year. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, should we move on to our second story, which actually comes off the back of COP in a way, because this is a new report from the UN Environment Program that was published this week. And it really reminds us of why we need to see the Conference of the Parties yeah. commit to bigger goals. All right, let's talk about this, Ant. What did this study say? Um, it's the Emissions Gap Report. Yes, it is. And it is a UN report. And look, basically, it said that we, you know, what is the emissions gap? It's the gap, I guess, between our commitments, our goals, our stated aims, and how we're actually going. So here's how we're actually going. Current policies in place will lead us to a 2.8 degree rise in temperatures by the end of the century. Now, you made a really good point today earlier. You said that actually under a bunch of old policies, before we did anything, before we started any climate mitigation at all, we were tracking towards something more like four degrees, which, which was really a reminder because four degrees, game over, literally game over for, for humanity. Um, as, as you work down from there, you get to a whole bunch of, of sort of worse scenarios or, or less, less bad scenarios, but it's still pretty bad. But look, 2.8 is still not acceptable. Let's be clear about that. We need to see 45% reductions, said the emissions gap report, by the end of the decade to stay under 1.5 degrees. Uh, we need 30% to stay under two degrees. And Elfie, I know you're all over this. Why is two degrees such an important number? Well, look, I don't know if two degrees is necessarily an important number, but there is a very strong gap between 1.5 degrees and two degrees of warming. So as much as we might say, you know, reducing by 30% could be acceptable by 2030, we really have to talk about the implications of the world uh, increasing in temperature by two degrees as opposed to 1.5. So a couple of years ago, the IPCC uh, actually published a report outlining the difference between those two temperatures. And we have to be clear that two degrees is not acceptable. So at two degrees of warming, for instance, we don't have coral reefs anymore in the world. All of them are dead. So we really have to take seriously the idea of sticking to 1.5 degrees of warming. And the report actually has a lot of really interesting information about this. So 
they outline all of the things that need to happen in terms of transformation towards green energy. Uh, interestingly, and I didn't really know this, Anne, but they point towards food systems at one point in the report, and they say that there needs to be rapid and lasting cuts to the emissions caused by food systems because they account for a third of all global emissions. I had no idea. But basically what the report says is we are generally moving in the right direction. We've just got to be going so much faster. Yeah, I mean, food, food systems are interesting because they mean everything. They even mean the transportation around food. I mean, you know, sometimes I see, you know, it's wintertime here and you'll see American cherries in the shops. They mm. should not be sending cherries around the world uh, on trucks, planes, boats, more trucks, you know, uh, yeah. so that we can have cherries in winter. I mean, we've got to live a little bit more seasonally, but that's just a sort of small but 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 illustrative example yes um, but look as ever this being a un report um leave it to antonio guterres you know he's a hero <laughs> of mine you know that uh, when you line up all the great um, un chiefs of the past from kofi annan to butrus butrus gali and javier perez de cuellar i love this <laughs> name I, i'm so boring at parties that's what i do elfie i just go and name old un chiefs it's it's just <laughs> such a terrible party trick but i think i'm funny but look anyway antonio guterres the current chief is my hero he said my message to the youth of today do not take up careers with the climate wreckers i urge you to be the generation that succeeds in addressing the planetary emergency of climate change well said antonio and uh you know there's that's available online that emissions gap report there's plenty in it yeah always a fighting quote from antonio that's why we love him <laughs> All right. Now let's move into our main story of the week. So since COP27 starts later this week, and since that means the world is about to have to organize its response to climate change, we thought we might as well speak to an expert in organizing that response. Ant, who are we speaking to this week? We are going to speak to Professor Christopher Wright. Now, he's a professor of organizational studies at the U University of Sydney Business School. Why is a business school guy talking about climate? Because he's also a key researcher at the Sydney Environment Institute. And Christopher Wright, I've known him for a few years. He's a terrific guy. He is at the intersection between business and climate. Absolutely fascinating guy. So as you said, look, the world's getting together to talk about responses to climate change. Christopher Wright is the co-author of a new book called Organising Responses to Climate Change. Full title, Organising Responses to Climate Change, The Politics of Mitigation, Adaption adaptation and suffering anyway you get the point he's, he spends his whole career talking about the sort of stuff that's happening this week at cop 27 so we thought well we better get christopher to talk about his new book and plenty more on the show today so let's roll our interview with christopher wright christopher wright uh, the book which you have co-authored begins human induced climate disruption is the most pressing issue facing our species Yet the ineffectiveness of the political response becomes ever more apparent in the face of the escalating crisis. Uh, it goes on and says that your book is about unpacking that fundamental conundrum. You tell me, Christopher Wright, how have you unpacked it? Yeah, thanks, Ant. I, I think that the key issue that, um, as, as that quote suggests, that Daniel and Vanessa and I have been puzzling over the years is why, given the voluminous scientific literature on uh, human-induced climate disruption, the political and corporate response, business response has been so timid and so weak 
and so in the book, we basically sort of argue that the reason for that is that uh, the response is organised in a certain way, that the response to climate change is organised around um, uh, policy and, and business responses, which ensure that nothing significant really changes in the sense of uh, continued economic growth uh, ad infinitum based on fossil energy primarily, uh, and that any changes that are made basically tinker with that at the margins. So we talk about in the book uh, the way in which the politics of mitigation, you know, reducing carbon emissions is all about commitments to net zero at some future date or fanciful technological sort of uh, solutions like carbon capture and storage or whatever it might be, which basically don't challenge the fundamental problem. We talk about how the politics of adaptation is basically framed by um, business and, and political elites around ensuring that there are new market opportunities to make money in, in different markets rather than actually meaningfully adapt to the big uh, extreme weather impacts we're going to see or are seeing now. And then finally, we look at the politics of suffering, which is how the, the current impacts, particularly in the developing world, are framed in ways that give us comfort in the developed world, that they're, some, they're happening somewhere else and we don't have to worry about them. And ultimately they become something of a spectacle for, for consumption. So what we're basically arguing is that the, the sort of the politics, the political economy of the climate crisis is being organized by those who have a vested interest in ensuring that nothing significant changes. Yes, and those points are incredibly well made in the book. And you know, there are so many great quotes uh in that intro. I could I feel like I'd like to read your whole first first chapter to uh to the audience of the green canary here today you know there's there's a question that you paraphrased from journalist elizabeth colbert uh when you said how is it that a technologically advanced society could uh, how is it that a technologically advanced society could choose in essence to destroy itself um, this is the question that you are seeking to address in the book, and you've just given an outline of, of the sort of methodology or the framework, how you do that. But look, let me cut to the really, really, really big question, Christopher. Can we mitigate this problem if the institutions that are tackling it are broken? If everything that's happening, even at COP27 later this week, is tinkering at the margins as you would have it can we solve the climate crisis without completely dismantling capitalism yeah that's the 64 billion dollar question i guess uh in in the latter stages of the book we do come back to you know what is to be done and uh we we sort of emphasize well obviously we need to decarbonize the way the world gets and consumes this energy and that can be technologically done as we now know the technology is there around renewable energy and battery storage and hydrogen green hydrogen all of these sorts of things um can significantly reduce uh current and future carbon emissions so decarbonizing energy production decarbonizing food production decarbonizing transport um so that's possible. Uh, the, the other two themes, though, I think are more problematic in the sense of the politics that we have, which is uh, we need to meaningfully embrace the idea of degrowth of certain sectors, particularly degrowth of fossil fuel uh, extraction and use, um, but also the way in which the whole engine of the global economy on, based on consumption and GDP growth needs to be completely rethought. And that obviously poses some huge challenges for uh, our politicians and our business leaders who don't even want to entertain any alternative to continued growth. But, but uh, and then the but third aspect... de... oh, sorry, I'll let you finish the third. Yeah. But my my follow up question is going to be: 
you know, it doesn't degrowth mean recessions. But let's get there. Finish your third point. Well, the third point was about in the need for increased democracy uh, in the way in which we uh, we don't just participate in democracies in terms of casting a vote every three years. It's about having meaningful democracy in the decisions that affect us. And that means in re reinventing the way our politics is organised and done, which is a huge task because we're sort of locked into this imaginary of party politics. Um, but it's about, you know, communities being involved and how they get their energy and how they consume their energy, um, grassroots sort of democratisation. So at the end of the book, we've got some, what some might see as rather fanciful sort of suggestions about reinventing the way we do our politics and, and do our economics. But that's really what we need to do to sort of challenge the climate crisis. Yeah, and um, the, the book is called Organising Responses to Climate Change, and you get there. You get to the way in which some of those responses might be organised. But I do come back to my question. When you talk of mm -hmm. degrowth, which is one of your, your key D words in there, you know, alongside decarbonisation and democracy, um, yeah. does not degrowth, it's a scary thing to put out there in the public realm. Doesn't it mean a shrinking economy? Doesn't it mean... You know, to paraphrase South Park, they took our jobs. <laughs> it means rethinking um, which sectors of economies we need to wind back and which sectors of economies we need to grow. So it's not blanket degrowth. It's about a recalibration of the sectors that are important to um, drive and, and expand, but also at the same time contract sectors which are harming the environment and harming um, our futures. So, you know, in the energy space, obviously what we need to do is degrow fossil fuel extraction and use, but we also need to regrow uh, new sectors that are based around renewable energy. So it's a sort of a more calibrated concept rather than sort of blanket recession. I mean, one of the interesting things I think in the future will be, probably not distant future, climate change will force degrowth on us anyway, uh, as we're starting to see these extreme weather events become more extreme and more profound. Entire supply chains will be shut down, populations will be endangered cities themselves on the coast will have to move basically so there will be forced degrowth uh if we don't do anything anyway and it'll be a pretty horrible and ghastly degrowth at that yeah well your, your point about degrowth not being uniform not being a overall shrinking of everything but being done structurally or or smartly or however you want to put it across certain sectors uh is a very good answer to my question so it it takes some of the fear factor out of it but look we are still facing massive institutional challenges. One of them is, uh, you know, climate denialism or not so much denialism because there's not much of that that's left apart from amongst the real wackies in society, but sort of too hardism, can't do itism, or just sort of sneaky cynicism. I love this, the quote at the start of your chapter two from the Exxon uh, Mobil lobbyist who said, did we aggressively fight against some of the science? Yep. Did we join some of those shadow groups to work against some of the early efforts? Yep, that's also true. But dot, 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 we were looking out for our shareholders, said he. So what are we going to do about the companies that are still looking out for their shareholders? Yeah, this is the problem because they're still doing that. As you say, it's no longer that explicit climate denial. It's this uh, delayism yeah. uh, that we see all around. Uh, and I think one of the chapters we talk about from denial to delay uh, so there's this sort of idea in the commitments to say to net zero by 2050, whatever, that all large organisations and nations seem to be signing up to. It's kicking the can down the road. It's not really meaningfully engaging what we have to do now. It's about delaying the problem. And, you know, the, the fossil fuel industries are fighting tooth and nail to ensure that they can continue to extract um, fossil energy 
as long as they can to maximize returns to shareholders. So it's a perfectly logical business strategy for them. And they've been doing it for 40 or 50 years with great success. Uh, so what do we do about that? Well, unfortunately, we have to disconnect the political power and influence um, of fossil energy and, and high carbon industries in government. And in Australia in particular, we're a best case scenario or possibly worst case scenario for that in the sense that uh, coal and gas basically call the tune on both sides of, of parliament around political decisions. Uh, and that occurs through a whole range of mechanisms, uh, political donations, the revolving door of personal appointments between politics and industry. Uh, we talk in the book about this idea of a fossil fuel hegemony. And what we mean about that is a sort of a uh, creation of an ideology that you can't actually challenge fossil energy. It's, it's, it's common sense that we get our energy from, from fossil fuels. And uh, to challenge that is seen as naive or crazy or stupid. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that's the framing that is constantly presented by politics, by media, uh, that we see. And so that's a very tough nut to crack because we have to sort of challenge these assumptions. And we're starting to see it. I mean, all those social movements out in the street. Well, the well I was going to get there. Strikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, a, as a sort of positive note to end this interview on, Christopher, um, there is a sense of hope at the end of your book, Organising Responses to Climate Change. Um, and it does come through those grass roots movements that's where the hegemony i always said hegemony was i wrong all these years anyway you say hegemony i say to i say tomato um, <laughs> but but that is where your uh, a lot of your hopefulness uh, or optimism towards change in the future comes from isn't it is from seeing how grassroots movements might spread their wings wider and become a model for the rest of us to to base our response to climate change on Yes, indeed. I mean, if, if you think back just 10 years, how rapidly things have changed in the social and the political discourse, and we've had the election of the, the Greens and the Teals in Australia, uh, and similar things happening in Europe and North America and elsewhere, there, there's a vibrant environmental and climate mobilisation happening. And you often forget how rapidly and how pervasive that change is. You know, the, the Greta Thunberg example of the school strikes is, I think, particularly um, strong there. And even more recently, the examples of the, uh, the scientists for climate, you know, with the, the actions, you know, yep. in front of buildings and things. So these are sort of um, symbolic and important protest movements, which raise this issue, because I think one of the biggest problems we've had for the last 20 or 30 years, particularly in Australia, is what I call climate change fight club, where we just don't talk about climate yeah. change. Yeah. Um, and I think I was listening to one of your podcasts recently, you mentioned that the, the BOM, the Bureau of Meteorology, had these sort of policies about not mentioning climate change. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's the fact that we can now talk about it and it, it's out there, I think, is part of this process of driving the change that we need, challenging the hegemony. hegemony um, <laughs> and, uh, and in a sense, sort of thinking, well, this isn't common sense, this is madness, and we need to rethink the way that we are structuring our economies and our politics. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, well, look, I'm going to come out of this interview, Christopher, and uh, ask Elfie whether she says hegemony or he hegemony or whatever, see an enemy, whatever she says. We'll work that one out. But for now, uh, your book, your terrific book, which I would urge everyone to buy, is Organising Responses to Climate Change, The Politics of Mitigation, Adaptation and Suffering. Suffering is actually a key thing in there, which we didn't touch on, but we'll let the uh, listeners find that when they buy themselves your book for Christmas. So Christopher Wright, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Green Canary podcast today. Thanks very much, Anne. It was a pleasure. Okay, for the record, and I 
think that I say hegemony, but also how many times do you say that word out loud in your everyday <laughs> life? I think I've said it maybe twice in my life, maybe. That's actually a really good point. It's one of those words you see on the page. And uh, look, far be it for you and I, humble non-academics, uh, to think it's hegemony. If Christopher Wright says it's hegemony, then um, as in, as I said, see an enemy, then <laughs> perhaps he knows better than we, but because I'm a uh, commoner and very set in my ways, I'm going to keep saying hegemony. <laughs> That's completely fair enough. But also, thank you so much for bringing us such a fascinating interview. Uh, we are going to move into mulch now, but I only want to move into mulch because it, the first story that we're going to talk about is actually off the back of something that Christopher said in that interview. So we want to talk about taxing gas after the budget. And this is something that we really just want to go over after the budget was announced by Treasurer Jim Chalmers. So a lot of it was putting dollar figures to plans that had already been announced. But we have to say there were a lot of like significant investments in a lot of renewable energy. Uh, there were things like rewiring the grid and securing that connection between Tasmania and Victoria that we spoke about last week. The Marinus Link, I think it's called. Um, <laughs> But the Mar I thought the Maris Marinus Link was the next James Bond movie, Elfie, when, when <laughs> I first read it, the Marinus Link. That's uh, where the Conference of the Pirates happens, Anne. Yeah. <laughs> but all coming um, together. <laughs> but one thing that we really wanted to speak about, uh, because it's something that a lot of experts were speaking about after the budget, was how wild it is how little fossil fuel companies are being taxed in Australia. And Dr. Sophie Scamps, Teal Independent, was on Twitter this week talking about the extremely low petroleum resource rent tax in Australia. So that rent tax is a tax generally on profits generated from the sale of marketable petroleum commodities, according to the Australian Tax Office. That is a mouthful. But basically, it's the tax that we charge these private companies for mining these resources in Australia and then exporting them overseas, which right now they are doing for massive profits because of the war in Ukraine driving up those commodities. Uh, according to Dr. Scamps, they are currently being taxed at about 1%, and that is down from 19% in 1992. Now, for contrast, Norway taxes their oil and gas companies at 78%, which is crazy when you think about it because that means they're still profitable at being taxed at 78 percent and that that is insane and you know this was great work from sophie scamps we've we've spoken before about how the teal independence you know, look you know we haven't spoken much about the teal independence since the may election actually because they were going to hold the balance of power we thought we 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 supposed for quite a mm. few days there uh, in the lower house until it became clear that labor had a majority so this is what the Teal Independents should be doing, Elfie. They should be piping up uh, at moments that it's a bit awkward for the government to, to listen to. They should be chiming in to the national conversation and putting big ideas out like this and reminding us that things like this exist. The PRRT, the Petroleum Resort Rent Tax, which is 1%, which is a token amount. And it mm -hmm. is ridiculous and it should be absolutely bolstered and guess how many you know resources companies would flee the country probably none yeah absolutely like how many billions are we missing out on right now it is wild to think about anyway let's talk about our second mulchy story and you love this you got pumped about this 
talk about ASIC giving its first greenwashing fine, please. Um, Elfie, I am a vindictive soul by nature and <laughs> I, I, I wish to see um, all, all types of harm and ill wrought upon those who have earned it. Now, there's a, com uh, a company... <laughs> Oh, I'm a terrible person. Absolutely awful. Now, there's a company called TLOU Energy, Tulu Energy. I don't know how you say it, and I don't care. They are a Botswana company, but they are listed on the Australian Securities Exchange. That is why we're talking about them. Now, they have been told that they have been greenwashing. They had a bunch of information spruiking their own environmental credentials, and Australia's corporate watchdog, ASIC, which is the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. But this week, in the spirit of COP27, when COP's the word of the week, they're the Australian Securities Investment COP, as far as I'm concerned. And they have waved their baton in the face of Tulu Energy and said, you're absolutely greenwashing. And we're going to issue you with a $53,000 fine. Now, that's not the biggest fine to a company like that, but it still made me feel good. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm really glad to see that. And you know what? This is the first uh, fine issued off the back of ASIC saying yep. a couple of months ago that they were going to get serious about cracking down on greenwashing. So it's very exciting to see it, honestly, as a consumer, because it's great to know that there's somebody out there making sure that people aren't just making these claims for no reason. All right. Yeah. Now let's talk about birds and specifically one bird, a single bird. Tell me about him, Ant. Well, him, her, it, her? she, yeah. Yeah, he, true. He, I don't know what the pronoun was for this bird, but um, I know what the adjectives are. They're bloody and they're awesome. Uh, this bloody awesome five-month-old bar-tailed godwit. Now, that's a little speckled, slightly fluffy-looking brown bird <laughs> with, a, with a slightly upturned, curved beak. It's a wader. You know, it lives in marshlands and, and uh, forages around for things. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so good at bird description. Anyway... <laughs> It flies Elfie from uh, Alaska to the Southern Hemisphere. So, some just stop in Japan, some go to the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I have seen Godwits, Elfie. I've seen them in Botany Bay. It is an incredible thing to see and think, wow, you flew here from Alaska, good for you. But they found one in Tasmania. Um, it was a 13 and a half thousand kilometer flight. It was actually tagged, this bird, with a tiny little satellite tag. And it's believed to have broken by 500 kilometres, the record for the longest uh, known bird flight, which is amazing. And I actually learned something very interesting about the godwit, I've got to say, which is that even though they make that massive migration from Alaska to New Zealand every year, they can't actually land on water at any given point during that because they are not able to like fly once they've landed on water, which seems like a kind of adaptive mistake for a bird that has to fly that bloody far every year, right? It sort of does actually, but it is amazing. I, I think the problem might be that they can't take off in water. They might be able to land on it, but they can't take off. But whatever the issue is, we must salute the godwit. And look, frankly, we know that, that, that so many birds, so many species across the world, um, I, I read that some uh, migratory birds, birds can no longer fly as far as they need to because they're not getting nutrition, because some of mm. their ecosystems are degraded. It's just pleasing, might have got lucky, but it's still pleasing to know that there are still birds out there that can break these sort of records. So somewhere out there, some species are healthy enough to do that. 
that makes me happy and that's a good note to end on I think yeah yeah absolutely okay so that is all we have time for this week thank you so much for joining us as always we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation we'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen never ceded Thank you, Elfie. And I would just like to remind you all to subscribe to our newsletter. You can do that by emailing hello at thegreencanary.co. And if you're really lucky, I'm going to find that Godwit photo that I took in Botany Bay um, not too long ago. I should be able to find it. If I can't, I'll just steal one with permission off the internet. But I'm going to put a Godwit in our newsletter this week. So subscribe and you'll know what one looks like. Um, don't also forget to follow us on Twitter where we are at Green Canary Pod and we are at Green Canary Media on Instagram uh, on which platform snippets of this uh, podcast have been known to pop up from time to time. So if you want to see how uh, stunning Elfie is and how strange I look, that is the place to go and do that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.